Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. Uh, Thank you, Mike, for the scripture reading and for Tim and Caroline and helping serve in worship. If you have got a Bible, again, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. While you're turning there, when I was in college, I worked with a guy, and uh, our voices didn't sound exactly the same, but they were close enough. And so he devised this prank against his wife, and this was the prank. Anytime she would call, he he would take his cell phone and give it to me, and I would try to pretend to be him, okay? And we did this to her like a thousand times, and she never got it. But I'd have to keep my sentences really short. So I'd pick up the phone and be like, hey. She'd be like, hey, how you doing? Good. You know, I, I didn't want to say too much, or she'd catch on. Is everything okay? Yep, just working. And she would go on, and we would have these conversations where she thought that I was my buddy, Okay? And it became really fun when she would ask about something of importance. She'd be like, hey, I'm going to run by the bank. How much money did you want me to withdraw? And I'm like, $5,000. He's like, hand me the phone. Hand me the phone. Give it back right now. And, then, and the, the prank went awry. Even to this day, if my wife leaves her cell phone and she goes to the other room, maybe she's bathing children, maybe she's doing something in another room, I will take her phone and I will text her friends. And I will say something like this. Zach is such a hunk. Now, nobody says hunk. This isn't the 80s. Zach is such a hunk. I'm the luckiest girl in the world to be married to him. Send, and I'll send it to her friends. Now, they have caught on, and so they will text back, is this Zach? And I'll say, no, how dare you? This is Katie. I am a girl, and I like pink, and I am Katie. And so I try to do this, but over time, they've learned to be able to uh, figure out whether or not it's true Katie or it is false Katie. Well, what we've seen in 1 John and what we're going to see in this text today is John is going to continue to talk about the thing he's been talking about throughout the letter of 1 John. He is writing as an apostle to this group of Christians and he is warning them about false teachers and he's giving them these signs of how they can know a true teacher from a false teacher how they can know whether it's real Katie or whether or not it is some weird guy trying to pretend to be Katie. That's what John's going to be doing through this letter. And so we're going to look at that text in here today. Let's pray, and then we will get into verse 4. Almighty God, I confess that, uh, that you are great, that God be found true, and every man a liar, that your word is true and that you are uh, perfect, that you are infinite, that you are spotless. And so I pray that you would uh, bless us as we open your word. I pray that you would uh, send the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, that he might open our hearts, that we might believe and see these wonderful things in your word. We love you. We can only ask this because of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's look at verse four. It says this. Little children. Now, by the way, we've talked about this a lot in 1 John. This is not a pejorative term. This is not like when you knock somebody down on the basketball court and you're like, get up, you baby. That's not what's going on. Little children is a term of endearment. John is like this old grandfatherly apostle, almost like Yoda. And as he's talking to these Christians, he is calling them little children because he loves them. He sees them as a spiritual family. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's look at the first phrase there. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. First thing I want you to know in this phrase here is the word you is actually plural in Greek. If you want to write in your Bible above that word, the good text is word y'all. That's what he's saying. He's addressing the church. This is a verse that's often used too individualistically. Yes, it's true that if you have the spirit, greater is he who's in you than the devil that he is in the world. Yes, it's true that uh, God does empower you to do mighty things, but that's not the primary focus of this verse. 
This is the kind of verse where people will like try to lift weights and be like, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. That's not what it's about. It's about talking about true churches versus false churches. Greater is he who's in y'all, the Christians I'm writing to, than he who is in the world. The next thing I want you to see here is a statement of identity. It says, little children, y'all, the church, are from God. Okay, now let me tell you why this is important. This is not talking about location when he says y'all are from God. That's not the point. He's not talking about location. He's talking about what is your identity. He's going to talk about the church being from God, those who are Christians, those who've been adopted by God, those who belong to God. And in just a second, we're going to see him contrast that with the world. Okay? He's talking about identity. So let me pastor you a little bit and then I'll get back to preaching and pastoring. We as humans have this insatiable desire to know who we are. We want to know our identity, right? We want to know what gives us value. We all strive for that. We all want to know what makes me important, what makes me special, where is my value found? It's something that we all desire. And if you talk to somebody for just a few minutes, you can instantly tell how they identify themselves. You can instantly tell where they find their value. Some people find their value in their job. That's what they want to talk about. Some people find their value in their money. They want you to know that they've got a lot of money. Some people find their their identity in their sexual orientation. That's the, the first thing they want you to know about themselves, right? Think of an atheist. The first thing they want to tell you is that they're an atheist for some reason. You're not even talking about that, but they bring it up within the first five minutes. Or someone who does CrossFit. That's their identity. Whatever conversation you're having, they're going to try to get it back to CrossFit. Whatever is your identity, whatever is your value, we all have something that we are striving for to find value and to find identity. Now, let me say this. Whatever you find your ultimate identity in, that is your God. Whatever you find your ultimate value in, that thing, if it is not God, is an idol, okay? So let me say a few things here in this statement of identity. Your identity is not found in your job and what you do, okay? Uh, This is especially the case with men. A lot of men find their identity in their jobs and then the feminist movement have told women to to do the same thing. But neither male nor female finds their identity in their job. Your value is not found in your gender and your value is not found in your race. Your gender and your race are good. They were created by God that way. You will be the race and gender you are now for all eternity. Notice that when Jesus is resurrected, he's not resurrected as like a Chinese woman. He's still a Jewish male, okay? You will be resurrected, your gender and race now. Your gender and race are good, but that is not what gives you your ultimate value. Your identity is not in how much money you have. Your value is not in whether you have a good or bad marriage. It's not whether you have a good or bad marriage. Your identity is not in being a mom or a dad or a good mom or a good dad or a bad mom, or a bad dad. Yes, we have a bunch of little I, not capital I, little I identities. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a Texas Ranger fan, etc. But the thing that you find your ultimate identity in is your God, okay? Your identity is not in being successful. Your value is not in honor, fame, or being recognized. We sing a song like that here at Parkway, that my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, that it's not in skill or name and win and lose and pride or shame. That's not where your value is found, okay? Your value is not in your looks or your body, especially hear, hear this if you are a woman, okay? It is okay to want to be beautiful. It is okay to want to be attractive for your spouse. It is okay to take care of your body, but that is not what makes you beautiful to God. 
That is not where you find your value. That is not where you find your joy. That is not where value is found. Your identity is not in your health or your lack of health. That's not your identity. There's a way to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Your identity is not found in your suffering. Maybe that's how you identify yourself. The primary way you see yourself as, is as one who's suffering all the time. Maybe you are suffering. I don't want to downplay that, but that is not your ultimate identity. I often find my identity in that. I'm the guy who's broken and anxious, and that's how I see myself. Your identity is not found in the opinions of others or being liked. Your identity is not found in the thing that you are tempted towards, whether it be homosexuality or adultery or greed or pride or whatever. That's not your identity. Here's what the Bible is going to say right out of the gate. Your identity is that you are a Christian. That's what makes you important. That's what makes you special. That is what makes you valuable, is that you have been adopted into God's family, and that is everything. To have the God of the universe be in relationship with you. He is infinite, and he is the only one that can fulfill that infinite longing in our hearts. That is your identity, that we are those who are from God. We are those who are from God. God. Now, look at the phrase again. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. What does it mean to overcome them? That's my question. What does it mean to overcome them? Does this mean that there was like an early battle in the church, that there was like John and his Christians versus the false teachers, and they got their bows, and they sharpened their swords, and they had victory over them? What does it mean to overcome them in the context? Here's what it means. It means to not give in to false teaching to not become schismatic and break away from the church, to not give in to this false gospel that John's opponents are preaching. Galatians 1.9 says this, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The Greek word is anathema, it means damned, okay? New Christianities are just old heresies. There are no new gospels. There is no new version of Jesus, okay? Remember this the next time somebody shows up on your porch dressed like they work at the Geek Squad at Best Buy. Remember that. Start talking about tablets. There's no new gospel. There's no new Jesus. There's no new Christianities. You overcome the false teachers by holding to what is old, by holding to what Christianity has always held for 2,000 years. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4, Paul is mocking people for abandoning the faith, and he says this, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, a new version of Jesus. It's not the version of Jesus the church has held for 2,000 years. It's a new one, okay? For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we perceived, um, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough, and Paul is saying, do not do that. What's new is good when it comes to technology, when it comes to medicine, when it comes to theology, and it comes to truth. What's old is what we hang on to. There's a guy who is a theological hero of mine. Okay, I've got a bunch of theological heroes. Most of them are dead and have been dead for a long time. But there are a few living theological heroes I have, and one of them is a guy named Alistair McGrath. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's this historical theology guy, and he is brilliant, okay? He has seven degrees from Oxford. What's Oxford? Like the best school in the world, right? Seven degrees from Oxford, including three doctorates. 
He did his first doctorate in chemistry, his PhD in chemistry and science, and he's got a second doctorate in theology, and he's got a third doctorate in intellectual history. So he just knows everything, basically, okay? And so he is brilliant. He's, I read a lot of his books. I haven't read all of them. There's too many. He just puts a new one out every week or whatever. And I, got, I heard that he was going to be speaking at this event in Dallas. And so I was super psyched up. So I signed up for this event, and I got there early, and I sat on the front row, and Carl came with me, and he was making fun of me. He's like, why don't you go ask him what he thinks about your sweet tactical shoes? Things like this, making fun of me. So I'm sitting there watching Alistair McGrath, and he is lecturing on Christianity and atheism. And during the lecture, he just knocks over his water and doesn't acknowledge it, like an insane person. So he's got this bottle of water, and he knocks it over. And it's spilled on his pants. It's spilled on the floor. It is all over his notes. And he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, whoops, I spilled my water. I would have made a joke or something like that. But he just keeps on going. And it's just drip, drip, drip. The lecture, he's focused. He's zoned in. He lifts up his water. And as he's talking, knocks it over a second time. Does not acknowledge it. It's just drip, drip. It's everywhere. And I'm thinking, man, this is interesting. There's water on the floor. Yeah, atheism. They don't know what they're... Yeah, but the dripping water. Please, somebody say something about the water. But he's zoned in. He's Alistair McGrath. He doesn't have time to deal with the things we mortals deal with, like spilling. And so after his, uh, after his lecture, I got a chance to, uh, to meet him. And he was super nice. He's got a cool Irish accent because he's Irish. He's got a cool Irish accent. And he was so kind. Sometimes when you meet your heroes, they let you down. And so I go up and uh, he had a book signing. And people brought these little little, you know, 50-page civilian books. No, I brought a section of his dissertation. I'm like, sign this for me. And can I have a lock of your hair? I mean, I was just weird. I was too weird with it, but I got a chance to meet him. Now, let me tell you one of the reasons why I so like Alistair McGrath, not just because he's a good theologian, not just because he's brilliant. He got saved out of atheism. So when he did his first doctorate at Oxford, he was an atheist, very against the faith. And then he got converted and has become a Christian, and he has devoted his life to fighting against atheism. So when they have a big name atheist and they need somebody to debate them, it's typically Alistair McGrath who they call to fight a Richard Dawkins or a Daniel Dennett or somebody like this. And though he has dealt with the most difficult arguments against the faith, though he has dealt with them for decades, he has not been overcome. He has remained faithful. And if anything, he just becomes godlier and godlier. He's also an Anglican pastor. He became ordained and he's a pastor. And so just a guy I really like because he's a stand-up guy. That's what he's talking about by overcoming. The, the, the Christians John's writing to, he's saying, you've overcome by not following the false teachers, by not falling away from the faith. You understand heresy, which is where you're so far off theologically that you're not a Christian. Heresy is not an intellectual issue. It's a spiritual issue. If you say, Zach, I believe in the Trinity, but I don't understand everything about it. Me too, okay? If you say, Zach, I believe what the church has always taught about Christ. I just don't know how it all works. Me too. That's okay. God is not sending people to hell because they have to jump through all these intellectual hoops. A heretic, though, is somebody who just doesn't merely not understand something. A heretic is somebody who denies it, who has heard it and says, no, I think my new view of God is what's right. You see, the problem with heresy is it's a person who hates the God of the Bible, and so they have to create a God of their own imagination so that they have something to worship, so that they can have an intellectual idol. And John is saying that you have overcome these false teachers, okay? Now look at the next part of the phrase. It says this, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Okay, a few, few comments on this verse, or this uh, section of this verse. First of all, when John says the world, he doesn't mean physical creation that God made good. That's not what he's doing, okay? 
So when the Bible says not to love the world or the things in the world, that doesn't mean you have to be like, oh man, I can't like mountains now because those are in the world. And I can't like my spouse because she's in the world. And I can't like the ocean but she's, because it's in the world. I can like the stars though. They're not in the world. That's not the idea, okay? It also doesn't mean, when the Bible talks about staying away from the world, it doesn't mean the non-sinful parts of culture. Especially hear this if you grew up in a Christian household. There's a tendency to think that what's Christian is whatever is explicitly Christian, whether it's a Christian movie or Christian music or Christian whatever, and then we think everything else is secular, right? We're the only people that use the word secular, by the way. Nobody else uses that, only Christians. No, I would say it's the other way around. If something is sin, that belongs to the devil, but anything that is Christian and or neutral belongs to Christ. Culture belongs to Christ. Jazz music belongs to Christ. Good movies, good books, those things belong to Christ. So when he talks about the world, he doesn't mean non-sinful parts of culture. He also doesn't mean the good physical world God created. When John says world, he means sin, the present evil age, the sin-scarred world. How do we know that? Because elsewhere when John says to not love the world or the things in the world, he defines it as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's what John means by staying away from the world. Not to create a weird Christian subculture, but rather not to do the sinful things that those who don't know Christ do, okay? Now look at the phrase again, for he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. This is meant to be an encouragement when you see the world crumbling around you and it looks like Christianity's false. When you see the world crumbling around you and it looks like things are just getting worse. It looks like we as Christians are losing. That's what it looks like. This is a reminder to say, no, 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 no. Because of who is in you, you have overcome the world. Let me give you a little illustration. When I was in uh, elementary school, we had a teacher and she said to the class, I'm gonna give you guys a surprise pop quiz And if you're one of the first few students to turn in your test, you get some candy. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love candy more than anything. And so I will be the first one to complete this test. And so she passes out the test. And right at the very top of the test, it says this, do not begin the test until you've read all the questions. And so I'm like, I don't have time for that. So I start hammering away at this test. I'm working furiously, math problem, check. History problem, check. I'm looking around. We're all working, you know, furiously because we need this candy. And then I'm only about a third of the way through the test and this little girl comes and she turns in her test. And I'm like, she must be a genius. How did she do this? Okay, I'm, at least I'm gonna come in second, okay? There's at least a little bit, of, little bit of pride in second place. And then another girl brings her test forward. And then another girl brings her test forward. And all the girls have turned in their test and all the guys are just working ferociously, okay? And I'm like, what is happening? Why are we so dumb? And you get to the very last question and it says this do not fill out any of the questions, simply go turn this paper back into the teacher. Guys don't follow directions, okay? We don't do step-by-step instruction. We just force the pieces together when we're building our fajorg from Ikea or whatever it is, okay? And so we ended up missing it. I thought I was winning. I was doing a ton of stuff. It looked like I was winning, but really I was playing the wrong game. The girls turned their paper because they saw the instructions. That's kind of how the church is. It might look like the world is winning, It might look like that's where you find joy and that's where you find pleasure, but really we know what the test says. We know what the end goal is and that salvation has been provided for us. We don't have to do anything. We just turn the test back in. Christ is the one who does all the stuff and so that's where he's encouraging them. Stay faithful. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take that prosperity gospel people. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Verse five, they are from the world. Notice, he talked about us being from God, and now he's gonna switch. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Let's look at that first part there, this us versus they kind of language that's going on. When he says we're from God, and these false teachers slash lost people are from the world, This, again, is not about location. It's talking about where is your identity. And the Bible is fine dividing humanity into two groups of people. It's not male and female. It's not black and white. It's not rich and poor. It's whether you are a Christian versus whether or not you are a non-Christian. Christianity is extremely exclusive. Our culture hates that. Our culture loves inclusivity. We love everyone being invited and included and everything the exact same across all areas of life. And it's actually just a result of what's called postmodernism. Postmodernism is not just denying absolute truth, although that's an element of it. What postmodernity says is anytime you have an in-group and an out-group, that in-group, by definition, will oppose and oppress that out-group. So anytime your group claims to have the truth or salvation or to be right, what you're doing is you're creating an us versus them mentality and you are oppressing that out group. This is from guys like Jacques Derrida and Jean-Francois Lyotard. There's a guy named Michel Foucault who's a postmodern philosopher and his goal is to take whatever is strange, whatever is weird that's on the outside and move it to the center. Because the more we can take what's weird and should be excluded and move it to the center, the more it normalizes it. It's all about inclusion. Now, let me be very clear. What Christianity is about is exclusion when it comes to claims of faith, inclusion when it comes to the kinds of people who can be saved. The church is made up of men and women, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, you know, whatever it might be. Texas fans, A&M fans, OU fans can all be Christians, believe it or not. Believe it or not. But at the end of the day, there is an in-group and there is an out-group. There is an us versus they, and that's the kind of language that John will use. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. I'm not saying that by us versus them, I mean we as Christians and the lost people are our enemies. They are not our enemies. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. What I mean is when it comes to our doctrine, when we, what we believe and what we confess, you are either of God or you are those of the world. Whereas we just saw that our identity as uh, those who know Christ is being a Christian, not in our job or our money or our marriage or whatever, but being a Christian, this is the kind of language that the Bible used for those who are non-Christians. So if you're not a Christian in here today, you're just kind of checking us out, I need to say something very difficult, but bear with me, okay? This is the kind of language that the Bible will give your identity if you are not a Christian, that you are belonging to the devil, that you belong to, quote, the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, that you are sinful, dirty, condemned, deceived, debauched, depraved, and listen, hated by God. You understand the Bible says not just that God hates sin, that God hates people, right? He, quote, hates the doers of iniquity. If you are not a Christian, God hates you. But he also loves you enough to provide his son so that you might have salvation. You see, we're all, in a sense, before we become Christians, there's a sense in which we're hated by God because we fall under his wrath, and there's a sense in which he loves us because he loves humanity and wants to redeem us. When you become a Christian, your sins are forgiven. All the hate and wrath that God had towards you has been absorbed by Christ, and then there is only love for you. But your identity, if you're not from God and you're from the world, is one who is not just neutral, but someone who is actively opposed to God. 
Look at the next phrase here. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. The Bible's going to say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, okay? So let me, let me say it this way. Your speech reveals what you really believe and who you really are. You don't get to separate those two. So if I'm on an airplane and I yell out, bomb, what's going to happen? Probably not good things to me, okay? I'm probably going to be escorted off. I might be arrested, whatever it is. I can't say, well, those are my words. I didn't really think there was a bomb. My words are linked to me. And so what John is saying is those, someone who has the spirit speaks true spiritual things. Someone who is a false teacher, someone who is not a Christian, they are speaking of the world and the world eats it up. They love it. Second Timothy 4, 3 through 4 says this. For the time is coming, by the way, this time is now. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. People will follow people that are already saying the things they already like, okay? That's what they'll do. One of the best compliments I've gotten here at Parkway is after preaching one time, a lady who was a visitor that came up and she said to me, thank you for being offensive. And I said, I'm I'm sorry, did I offend you? She goes, no, no, it's good. You should be offensive. Thank you for being offensive. And I was like, great, I'll just keep being offensive. That's great, I can do that. Some things I have trouble with in sanctification, that's not one of them, okay? 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, listen to this. See if this doesn't read like a who's who of our era. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Interesting. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. You know that guy that preys on the single mom because he knows that she'll, be, that she'll be easy prey, that kind of guy? Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I want you to see two things here, okay? False teachers can be very successful by worldly standards because the world listens to them. You can never say this church is doing a good job because they have a bunch of people. You know who has a bunch of people? The devil, okay? God elects less people than he reprobates. So apparently numbers can't be the mark of success. False teachers will often be very successful by worldly standards. Why? Because they're saying the things that people already want to hear. It's so much easier to be a false teacher. Oh, there there is so much money to be made in religion if you're doing false religion. It's incredible. What false teachers will do, number two, is they will make the Bible harmonize with the values of the culture. You see, what the church is supposed to do is to be a prophetic voice to the culture. We're not supposed to exclude the culture. We're not supposed to think that culture's bad. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. But we're supposed to critique the world. We're supposed to play the role of the prophet. We have the Bible, and we say, this is good in culture, but this over here in culture is bad. And it's the culture that has to change, not the Bible. What false teachers will do, though, is that they will shift it the other way around. They will make the the biblical text kind of transform it and make it fit within the values of culture. So on any issue that you think about, whether it's a social issue, a moral issue, whatever it might be, typically there's wrong views on either side, but you have to ask yourself, which is the greater danger? If there's two serpents in the garden and one is bigger than the other one, there's some wisdom in killing the biggest serpent first. What do I mean by that? Let me say a few things. Which is more a threat to the church? Male leadership or feminism? Which one do you think? 
It's feminism because that's the way culture's going. Culture's not going towards male leadership and male headship. So yes, there are people that take that too far and people that become chauvinistic, which is sin, but the greater threat is whatever the way the culture's going, and that is towards feminism, which is more of a threat to the church, thinking that sexual assault is okay or accepting false allegations of sexual assault. I don't know of a church on earth that says sexual assault is okay. I'm not worried about the church drifting in that direction. I'm worried about the church drifting in the direction of saying that we should just take unsubstantiated allegations of sexual assault because that's the way the culture's going, okay? Which is more of a threat to the church, offending people who like homosexuality or failing to say that it's sin. It's failing to say that it's sin because that's the way the culture is going. Okay? You always have to ask, if we're not neutral okay, in your thoughts. You're like on a river, and you always have to ask, which way is that river running? Because unless you're actively paddling against it, you will go down the path of the river, which is more of a threat to the church, saying that we shouldn't help people at all, or replacing the gospel with secular social action. Well, that's the greater threat to the church, because nobody's going to say we shouldn't help people. I don't know of a church that says that. The culture would say the gospel should not be about what the gospel is really about, God and man, but rather it should be about man and man. It should just be about our relations with one another. That's the greater threat, which is more of a threat to the church, capitalism or socialism. It's socialism because that's the way the church, or I'm sorry, the, the culture is drifting, which is more of a threat to the church, actually being unloving or restricting freedom of speech because it feels like it's unloving. Well, the second one, That's the greater danger to us because that's the way the culture is going. So let me just say it this way. Those who are of the world, those who are non-Christians, the false teachers and the schismatics that John is talking about, it's easy for them to tell people what they already want to hear. So here's what you need to know. The Bible should offend you and if it doesn't, you're not reading it correctly. I'm terrified of the person that reads the Bible and they just think everything they're reading agrees with what they already hold. You're not reading the Bible correctly. The Bible's perfect and you're a sinner and so it should constantly be critiquing you. There are verses, how dare I say this, in the Bible that I hate. I'm not right. I'm wrong in hating them. They're God's word. But if I'm being honest, when I read a passage that says, turn the other cheek, I think, I hate that, right? Because when you punch, I punch. I don't like turning the other cheek. When I read a passage that says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, which is kind of like most of our lives, but rather consider others as more important than yourself, I think, maybe that's a typo somewhere. I don't really like this. You see, the Bible will often offend you before it transforms you. The Bible will cut you and then it will heal you. But you should be open to being rebuked. If somebody is teaching all the stuff you already want to hear that fuels your sin, there might be a reason why you have itching ears to hear that person speak. All of this is being written by John to simply say this message. So I wanna say this to you before we move on to the next verse. What John is simply saying to his audience is this. Don't leave the faith. Hang in there. I know Christianity is hard. I know there are competing worldviews, but don't leave the faith. Hang in there. Maybe you're thinking about leaving the faith to join another religion. I'm here to tell you that only Orthodox Christianity is true. Everything else is man-made. Don't leave the faith. Maybe you're thinking about leaving the faith so you can pursue a sin you want to do. Most of the people that I know that were friends of mine that became atheists were not because of some intellectual thing they came to. It's because there was some moral thing that they didn't like and they didn't want to feel convicted and so they denied the faith so that they could pursue whatever sin they're wanting. I promise you that sin will not fulfill you. I promise you it will only bring you shame whereas God has promised joy to those who know him. Maybe you're thinking about leaving the faith because you have felt anxious and condemned for a really long time. You realize that anxiety and condemnation doesn't go away just because you walk away from Christ. If anything, it could make it worse. Don't leave the faith. Christ is your peace. 
Maybe you're thinking about leaving the faith because you have a lot of doubts. Look at me. So do I. I have so many doubts. I have all these answers theologically for why whatever happens. You know what that also means? I know all the loopholes. I know all the arguments that can be brought against the faith. It's okay to have doubts. Nobody goes into heaven without a limp. Nobody goes into heaven without having some type of doubt. That's okay. Don't forsake the faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but disobedience. Disobedience. Maybe you're thinking about leaving the faith so you can live for your own fame and glory. That will be fleeting. God has already promised you glory, that you will be resurrected, that you will have eternal life and eternal joy. Don't give up that for something temporary. Don't leave the faith. Maybe you're thinking about leaving the faith because you think Christianity is unloving about something or unloving towards somebody. God is the standard of love. Wherever you think Christianity properly interpreted, biblically, is unloving, the problem is your meter that discerns whether or not something's loving, not with Christianity itself. Don't leave the faith. Maybe you're thinking about leaving the faith because someone who claimed to be a Christian has hurt you, okay? Let let me be very clear. The only person who will not hurt you like that has been resurrected. Christ is great. His bride, the church, needs a lot of work, okay? So Christians will hurt you. That's part of our message. Christ is great, we're all awful. That's part of the message of Christianity. We will stab you in the back. We will gossip. You will feel judged. You will have somebody hurt you. That doesn't mean that Christ betrays you like that. The only way God hurts you is for your good, discipline. His followers will often break your heart. Maybe you're thinking about leaving the faith because you're mad at God. Maybe that's why. Maybe you're on the edge today and you're thinking, man, I hate this. I, deep down, I am really mad at God. I can't believe he took this person from me. I can't believe he let me go through this situation. I can't believe he has done these things. I don't want to be a Christian because I am mad at God. Run to him, not from him. Have a conversation with him. Pray, ask, seek, knock, and it will be opened unto you. Deal with that issue. Don't just let it become this root of bitterness that grows up within you. Don't leave the faith. Verse six. We are from God. We've already talked about what that means. Listen to this next part. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's look at the first part. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is uh, not from God does not listen to us. Verses one through six. Okay, we're just dealing with four through six today, but verses one through six, John is addressing his audience and he gives them two ways of knowing the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher. The first way Jeff talked about last week, 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. For many false prophets, notice those spirits are false prophets, have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So last week, Jeff exposited this verse and it was excellent because he brought out some really funny conclusions we come to. I was told as a kid, here's what this verse means. That if you run into a spirit, when does that happen? Right, like you're out checking the mail and you bump into a demon. What you first do is you give him a pop quiz, okay? Do you believe Jesus has come in the flesh? And if he says yes, you can just do whatever he says. And if he says no, then get away from him, right? Anybody else heard that? Are we the only ones? Weird teachings we all heard growing up, okay? Weird teachings. The problem with that is one, demons do believe Jesus came in the flesh. Two, demons can lie to you and trick you. Three, there's a lot of heretics who believe Jesus has come in the flesh but deny some other part about him. 
So that's not a comprehensive test. The reason John mentions that because that's the particular false teachers he's dealing with, okay? Jeff did a great job. If you didn't get a chance to hear that lesson, go back and listen to it from last week. But now John is gonna give us a second indicator of true versus false teaching. Okay, let's look at it again. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Who is the us there? Who's the us there? Whoever knows God listens to us. So this is really important who the us is. The us is John, the apostles, and the orthodox community of faith. Okay? It's the true church. It's those who are of the apostolic church, meaning they follow the apostles. The Bible says the church is founded on the prophets and the apostles. Christ is the cornerstone, and we have these scriptures from the prophets, and we have them from the apostles. And so here's what this text is doing. It's giving us a second indicator of how you know a true teacher from a false prophet. Here's what it is. Ready? This text tells us another way we know if someone's a false teacher, and it's this. If they commit schism against the apostolic church. Okay, now let me say something, and then you'll freak out. Don't freak out, and then I'll clarify what I mean. Okay? A false teacher is someone who is not Catholic. <gasps> Here's what I mean by Catholic. Pay attention to this. I don't mean Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic is a denomination headed up by the Pope where they venerate Mary and pray to saints even though they're dead and can't hear you and these kind of things. That's not what I'm saying. When I say that a true teacher is Catholic and a false teacher is not Catholic, I mean what the word Catholic actually means. Catholic, small c, which means universal. You belong to the universal church. You hold what Christians have always held. You believe in the God Christians have always believed in. You believe in the version of Jesus Christians have always believed in. That's what I mean. Zach, I didn't like that you used the word Catholic. You know what else uses that word? The New Testament. In Greek, it uses the phrase kathales. That's where we get the word Catholic. It means throughout all. It's used constantly in the book of Acts. The church throughout all the world. That's what it means. And so what John is saying is this. If you don't belong to the church of the apostles, you don't belong and hold to the, the views that the church has always held, you're not Catholic, small c, that you are of the world. Let me give you some quotes by guys in church history. Cyprian says, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. If anyone could escape who is outside the ark of Noah, then he also may escape who shall be outside of the church. Now, we as Protestants do not hold that you are saved by the sacramental system of the church, but we hold this. You're saved by faith in Christ alone, but when you become a Christian, guess what? You become part of Christ's bride. You as an individual are not Christ's bride. The church is Christ's bride. So if you say, I'm a Christian, but I'm somehow detached from the bride, I don't know whether or not you're married to Christ. Or Philip Melanchthon. Who's Philip Melanchthon? He is the Robin to the Batman of Martin Luther. He is the right-hand man of Martin Luther. He says this, what does Catholic mean? Great question, Philip. That's what we're asking. Help us out. Those are truly called Catholic who accept the doctrine of the truly Catholic church, i.e., that which is supported by the witnesses of all time, of all ages, which believes what the prophets and the apostles taught, and which does not tolerate factions, heresies, and heretical assemblies. We must all be Catholic, i.e., accept this word from which the rightly thinking church holds, separate from and unentangled with sex warring against that biblical word. Or Martin Luther. If there was ever a guy at the end of his life who did not like the Catholic Church, it's him. But listen to how he defines the church. Anywhere you hear or see such a gospel word preached, believed, confessed, and acted upon, do not doubt that the true, holy Catholic Church must be there, even though there are very few of them. For God's word shall not return empty. Okay? What John is saying is here's the second way you know whether or not somebody's a false teacher. The first way you know is whether or not 
they have the right view of Jesus. The second is whether or not they stand within the tradition of the apostles, whether or not they stand within the tradition of the orthodox, that's a phrase that just means correct doctrine, of the orthodox faith. That's what he's saying. If they listen to me, John, they listen to the apostles, they listen to our message, they're a true teacher. But if they're teaching some new Christianity that nobody's ever held for 2,000 years, that's really changing some major doctrines, they are false teachers. Let's look at the last phrase here. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The spirit of truth there, by the way, is the Holy Spirit. The spirit of error is the evil spirit standing behind the false prophets, the devil and demons and what the false prophets are saying because whoever owns you is how you talk. That's kind of the idea. But I think when it says by this, he's referencing all of verses one through six. He's not just talking about the thing he just mentioned. He says, by this, what I've just mentioned, these two tests, you can help discern the Holy Spirit from the spirit of error. So this text is simply gonna end by asking us this question, okay? Just implicitly asking us this question. Who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Because it's one of two things. You're either from God, meaning that you've been adopted by God, you've been forgiven. All your sins have been covered. You've accepted Christ, you believe in him, you worship him, you love him as the one God, the God of Israel. Or, or you are of the world And by default, the one who, in a sense, owns the world, the devil. That's what he's saying. Those are the two options for you. So here's my question. Which camp do you belong to? And here's the good news. If you already know Christ, everything is okay. You will have tribulation in this life, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. Worst case scenario for you if you're a Christian is eternal life. That's worst case scenario. Eternal bliss forever that can never be taken away. It's pretty good. If you are somebody, though, who's the Bible, what the Bible says, of the world, you're someone who's not a Christian, here's the good news for you. Jesus offers a full pardon for your treason if you will but bow the knee. He's stronger than you. He's coming back. You will give an account. You're going to die, and you will give an account for your sins. You will stand before Christ as a judge, and he offers you now a full pardon for sins in your past, for sins you're presently dealing with, and even for sins in your future. Not a blank slate, a slate that continually stays blank because Christ is perfect. He offers you that. What do I have to do? I'd love to be pardoned. I don't want, I've committed treason against the God of the universe. How do I get this pardon? It's free. It's a gift. Jesus did all the stuff. He died for you so you don't have to. He fell under the wrath of God so you don't have to. Take the gift. Take the gift. Ask him to save you. Cry out to him for mercy. If you have questions about this, our staff and elders would love to talk to you more about where you're at and your faith. We love you. Let me pray as those helping serve communion make their way towards the front of the room. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. I pray for those in here who do know you but are just doubting and hurting and maybe like John's readers are tempted to leave the faith, tempted to believe something that's false. I pray that you'd encourage them. I pray for those in here who are not Christians and maybe just think everything I'm saying is just silly. I pray that you might remind them that the Bible says, of course they see that. They're deceived. Their minds have not been renewed. They can't see the things correctly. That that wouldn't be just offensive for offensive sake, but maybe an offensiveness that awakens them to the truth of Christ. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you for caring for us. We pray that you would bless this time as we transition into communion. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.